Good morning, High Point family. Whether you're gathered here with us in person or you're gathered online, we are excited that you're here and you've chosen to be a part of the High Point worship this morning. We're going to continue on with our series on the great villains we see in Scripture. During the 18th century, the time of the Great Awakening, there was a street evangelist named George Whitfield that traveled from town to town and village to village in and around Bristol, England. His message was simple, Jesus and Christ crucified and how we need to repent to receive the great gifts that we are found in Jesus Christ. Well, according to his biography, Whitfield says he never traveled alone. He had a despised nemesis, a man by the name of Thorpe. And Thorpe and his band of rebellious friends called themselves the Hellfire Club. And their job was to heckle these itinerant preachers, to travel around with them and stay on the fringe and kind of mimic them and try to distract those that were trying to hear about Jesus. Well, Thorpe actually got pretty good at doing Whitfield. He studied his, his facial expressions and his mannerisms, his tone and voice inflections, even copied some of his same favorite phrases. And it didn't help that poor Whitfield was a little bit cross-eyed and Thorpe had it down. Well, one night, Thorpe and his buddies in the Hellfire Club were in a local pub. And some, some of the patrons said, Thorpe, you got to do Whitfield. Do Whitfield. He goes, no, 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 no. He goes, Thorpe, Thorpe, okay, okay. And so they handed him a Bible, and he opened it up to Whitfield's favorite passage. He started pulling together some ideas and some phrases he had heard out on the streets. He kind of put together his own little message. And so his sermon that day was about God's love for sinners demonstrated in Jesus, God's only son, sent as a sacrifice. And then he read this passage from Luke chapter 13 and verse 3 that says, Unless we too repent, all will be lost, we'll all perish. And somewhere in the middle of that sermon, God's spirit got a hold of Thorpe. And the, and the power of God's word pierced his heart. And there in the middle of the pub, he got down on his knees and started sobbing, saying, I'm that sinner. We didn't leave it there. He got up off his knees and he went and found Whitfield and was baptized that night. He said, I want to give my life to Jesus. God had rescued this villain and even turned this heckler into an evangelist. See, Thorpe started traveling around with Whitfield, sharing his story of his redemption. This morning, we're going to look at a villain that we all know that, boy, he was the most infamous persecutor of all the Christians. But God's going to take him from persecutor into the evangelist for the Gentiles. Let's worship together. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 6, and also Acts chapter 9 will be our primary passages for this morning. I think most of us are familiar with the story of Saul slash Paul, and by the way, I'm going to get those confused this morning. They're the same guy. But we're familiar with his conversion story on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. But we really need to realize that Saul's story starts back in Acts chapter 6 with a man by the name of Stephen. Now, who was Stephen? 
Well, Stephen was one of the original deacons that was chosen to kind of be over the senior citizens and widows Meals on Wheels program. But he finds himself proclaiming the name of Jesus and is stoned to death for proclaiming Jesus Christ crucified. And there is Saul holding the garments and the coats of the executors of the first Christian martyr. And so we, we look at this, and, and the text tells us that Saul kind of goes crazy. In fact, there's a great persecution that starts happening all around Jerusalem, and, and Saul is at the, the tip of the spear. He's knocking on doors. He's kicking them in, and he's arresting both men and women. If they won't renounce the name of Jesus, and he throws them into prison. Well, all the Christians start scattering. And, and they start fleeing to different towns and villages. And so Saul goes up to the, the high priest, and he's like, there's a big clump of, of our folks. I know where they are. They're there in Damascus. He says, go, and he gives him a letter. He said, go round them up. Do whatever you have to do. Bring them back here, and they'll face trial. They'll either be thrown in prison or they'll be executed. And so Saul goes. And, boy, he's out on the road to Damascus. And, and what happens? Well, this giant light, so it was brighter than the noonday sun, comes shining down and it blinds everyone temporarily. But it blinds Saul more, longer than that for three days. And, and so this voice comes out that only Saul can hear and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's like, Lord, is that you? Yes. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go on into Damascus. And wait, there's going to be a little, little place for you to go on Straight Street. Go into this person's house, and I'm going to send one of my representatives. And so sure enough, those that are with Saul lead him into the village. He's blind. He makes his way into this house, and he waits there. Then the Lord taps Ananias on the shoulder and says, Ananias, I've got this guy named Saul. And Ananias is like, uh, Lord, I know who Saul is. You don't have to tell me. We heard he's in town. Yeah, I, I, I want you to go and tell him the good news about Jesus. Lord, I want to go. I don't care. I've got big plans for Saul. He's going to become Paul, and he's going to be my voice into the Gentiles. So three days later, Ananias takes Saul, baptizes him, and sends him off on his mission. Just amazing. But I, I think we need to realize that this story is important because this whole story is retold two more times. The first is in Acts chapter 22. Uh, Paul ends up coming back from one of his missionary journeys, and, and he comes to Jerusalem. And while he's there, he just makes his way into the temple, and some guys uh, didn't really like him and thought he was a threat, accused him of bringing a Gentile into the temple. He's like, no, I didn't do that. But as they're arresting him, he asks to speak to the crowd. And he says, I understand your zealousness. I understand why you feel threatened. Let me tell you my story. So he walks right through it. Four chapters later in Acts chapter 26, there's Saul, now Paul, that makes his way into the courtroom of King Agrippa and Festus. And they're there, and they're talking. And Paul tells his story almost verbatim all over again. So if you think about it, 
Luke has 28 chapters to tell the whole story of the first century Christians and what happened as the gospel message goes from Jesus into the 12 and then goes out from there. Why did he choose to tell the same story and retell it two more times, taking up three of the 28 chapters? Obviously, Luke thinks this story is crucial. It's crucial not only for the first century hearers that would read this and, and hear that he's told this story three times, but it's also crucial for us. It's paramount that we understand Saul's story because Saul's story needs to become Paul's story in our life. So I want us this morning to, to ask and answer two separate questions. The, the first question is this. Why did Saul and his companions reject the message of Jesus? Why did they reject the gospel? Why was it a threat? Supposedly it's good news. The second question I want us to address this morning is this. What's your Damascus story? What's your conversion moment? When was it that Jesus intersected your life? What's your story? Saul slash Paul is going to retell it at least two times. You know it was more than that. What's your story? When was your encounter with Jesus? When did Jesus stop you in your tracks? Well, to, to answer the first question, I, I think we get a glimpse into Saul's reluctance to what was happening with this Jesus movement in the story of Stephen. So if we back up to Acts chapter 6, it says Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power. And, and he starts to preach. And it's not just that he had a great message. It said the Lord blessed him with the ability to do miracles and signs to accompany this good news message. And, and so the, the guys in the synagogue start to feel threatened. And they're like, we can't compete with what the people are hearing and seeing with Stephen. Oh, they tried to debate him. But whenever they brought up different points, it said the Lord's wisdom was with Stephen. So they, they, couldn't, they couldn't get a word in edgewise. They had no way to unravel what he was starting to do in the spirit by which Stephen was proclaiming the good news. It said that his face was like the face of an angel just glowing as he told the good news of Jesus. So he had to be stopped. Acts chapter 6 and, and verse 12 through 14 says this. It says, so they stirred up the people. They're like, we, we got to get them worked up. We, got, we, we want them to see things like we do. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law and, and say, don't you realize why this is threatening to you, not just us? And they seized Stephen. And they drug him before the Sanhedrin, and they produce false witnesses that said, you want to know about this fellow? You want to know what he's been up to? This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place, the temple, and, and against the law. Are you really? He's going after the law. And for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs um, that Moses himself handed down to us. This is what's at stake. And so when they couldn't answer Stephen's arguments as a disputant, 
they decided to persecute him as, and prosecute him as a criminal and, and bring these false witnesses against him. Well, we learn a lot about why Saul was so upset and why he was reluctant to accept the Jesus message with their charges. The, the first charge is this. These guys in this message is going to bring about the destruction of the temple. Now, for the Jews, the temple is everything. I mean, this is where they went to encounter God. God's holy hill that you could see from miles away as they marched up and they saw Herod's temple gleaming with gold. This was the place that you came sometimes it was a pilgrimage once in a lifetime. Sometimes it was once a year. Some that lived closer had the means to come several times for the major feast. Because there was something magical when they walked through those gates. And when they walked up to the temple, the temple that David had designed and, and Solomon had constructed. And, and yes, Herod had put it together. But this was a special place to encounter God. It was this holy city and his holy house. But this house was not for everyone. It's pretty interesting. Archaeologists found an, an inscription uh, when they were kind of uncovering some stuff in the temple area. And, and it was a stone tablet that was chiseled in Greek. And basically, this was a blockade. And this was a stop sign for the Gentiles as they walked into the court of Gentiles that basically says, you guys can mill around here and hopefully you have a great worship experience. Can't go any further. This is it. So here's what the inscription said. He said, no foreigner may enter within the balustrade around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught, hey, it's on you. On himself shall he put blame for the death which will ensue. So basically, Gentiles could come and, and they could worship here, but they went any further. One more step, you're going to die. It's not going to be our fault. It's going to be your fault. And so all this talk about the gospel's inclusion for the Gentiles and, and, and all this talk about how that God doesn't live in temples built by hands and, and Jesus' words in John chapter 3 about, see this temple? Boy, all the stones are going to be thrown down and in three days they're going to rebuild it. Saul and his companions says, all this talk needs to stop. This is threatening our very existence. And this teaching and this teacher are a threat. But the city on a hill that was designed to be a light unto the nations had become this inward-seeking house of worship, this exclusive place. But it had to be protected above anyone or anything that was going to threaten it. Well, the second charge that they brought against Stephen was this, the, the disparagement of the law. And I think for Saul of the three, this was the biggest one. Why is what he, he could do. He was terrible at golf, but he knew the law. He knew it backwards and forwards. I mean, this was his deal. And it meant everything to him. It's where he put his confidence. And in his religious performance under the law, he knew this stuff backwards and forwards. Here's what he said to the church in Philippi, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. He goes, you want to know about the law? <laughs> I lived it. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews. 
Well, in regards to the law, let me tell you about it. Well, I was a Pharisee. I was a good one, too. As for zeal, I'm not just warming the pew. Boy, I was out persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, I was faultless. I was faultless. Can you imagine saying that? So Paul would later, uh, you know, go after his accusers in Jerusalem. He's like, guys, <laughs> this isn't new to me. I used to be on the other side. He goes, let, let, let me tell you, I know where you're coming from. I grew up here. He goes, I too value the law. Have you heard of a guy named Gamaliel? I was his star pupil. I know this stuff. The, the law, I, I, I can recite it. I'd studied under him, and I'm no lightweight in knowledge or application. <laughs> the law and me, they're, they're inseparable. And so now you have this Jesus fella saying, I'm here to fulfill the law. I'm not going to do away with it. Let me tell you what it means now that I'm here. All they could see was how he was disregarding the laws of Sabbath, having his disciples were walking out in the field eating on Sabbath, breaking the healing people when they're supposed to be resting. It's supposed to be a focus on God, and you're out healing people down by the, the pool. There was a real fear that the law, the thing that they had risen to the top because of their knowledge and their application and the way that they could share how you're supposed to do this and, and the hedges to pull back from. And they knew all the arguments and they loved to dialogue and now they feel like all that's going to be taken away. And so it had to be protective. And finally, Saul and his buddies went after because they felt like that what was happening is the dissolvement of their customs. The dissolvement of their customs. So their whole way of life, their rhythm, how they did their week, how they did each hour, what they did on their calendar, all that was scripted out. And it felt cozy and comfortable because they knew this world backwards and forwards. And they felt like, boy, we spent all this time and now you want to just up in the apple cart. And nothing seems to fit right. So Paul says, Boy, I'm a Jew, but I, I was raised in a house with parents that are Roman citizens, obviously of means. And, and because of his aptitude, they moved him to Jerusalem to train under the most gifted of the professors. And so the top rabbi in Jerusalem takes him on. He's a star pupil. And apparently, Saul was rising through the ranks. He had this trajectory going. L listen to what he says to the church at Galatia. In Galatians chapter 1, and verse 14, he said, let me tell you. He said, boy, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and my own people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. It, it wasn't just that I understood where my dad and grandpa and great-grandfather were coming from. But I was living it. That message I had received, and I was actually doing it better than my peers and my family and everyone else. I was heading in the most awesome direction. So plain and simple, what Saul is saying is, I was a rising star. <laughs> Everyone knew what was going to happen with me. I had the right pedigree. I had the right aptitude. I had the right drive and determination and experiences and connections. My whole life was set before me. <laughs> it was the top of the food chain. 
and anything that was going to serve as a threat to interrupt the life I had planned had to be snuffed out, including Stephen, the first Christian martyr. That's how important it was to Saul. I think the most tragic thing about the story of Saul is when you read his writings, I don't think Saul felt like he needed Jesus. He didn't need this message. He didn't need salvation. And he didn't like that salvation was for everyone because he had already achieved his salvation the hard way through works-based righteousness. Why do I need Jesus if I'm already living a flawless life? And now you've got the tax collectors, prostitutes, those that flunked out of Bible class. They're now saying, hey, I'm saved just like you. You and I are all the same. No, we're not the same. Well, we are in Jesus. Acts chapter 26 and verse 9, Paul says this. He says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. It's too threatening. It's too dangerous. And that's just what I did in Jerusalem. And on the authority of the chief priest, I, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when it came up for a vote, are they going to live? Are they going to die? I cast my vote against them. It was a thumbs down. Take them out. That's how threatening the message of Jesus was to Saul to become Paul. Because Saul was so hardcore, Jesus is like, we're going to have a major intervention. And so, What happens here on the road to Damascus is not a conversion story. It's a collision story of Saul coming head into a wall, and the wall is Jesus Christ. Brian Broderson says this, every conversion story will include a collision story. Isn't that great? A moment where your life and your beliefs, how you were raised, And your worldview, how you see things, collides with God's reality. Have you been there? Have you had your collision with God? Where you had everything lined up, and then God says, oh no, we're going to go a different direction. Uh, I don't want to. (laughs) Oh yeah, Uh, here's what my plans are for your life. And, And this is my will. You've tried it this way. You understood, and you tried to earn, and that's not working. We're going to go a different direction. So this conversion is actually a collision with God. How did it work out for Saul slash Paul? Did it take? Sure, he had this, this moment on the road. Was it effective? Absolutely. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. Paul says, all my accomplishments, all my accolades, things I bragged about at dinner parties for years, the the pats I got on the back, and and all the things that people are saying about me, and just, oh, how exciting it is. This is rubbish. (laughs) It means nothing. If I can't have Jesus Christ and him crucified, just give me Jesus. (laughs) None of that matters. Jesus came to save sinners. Sign me up first because I'm at the top of the list. I persecuted Christians. I'm the chief of sinners, 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. 
They, they say I'm one of the apostles. If I am, I don't want to be called that. But if you want to call me that, I'm the least. Put me at the bottom of the list. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9. You see how his whole demeanor is changing. He sees himself so much less because Christ has become more. He says, any of the salvation stuff, please forgive me. It still haunts me. I said, oh, it was flawless. It's the grace of God. <laughs> That's the only reason I can stand before you today is the grace of God. Ephesians 2 and verse 8. <laughs> that collision made an impact. If, if, if that's Paul's conversion experience, what's your Damascus story? Tell me about your collision. Mine came in the fall of 1988. I was invited to travel with an evangelist around the world. You've heard me tell various parts of the story before. We went to 16 different countries as learners. Uh, we were there to study uh, different world religions from different world leaders and stuff and had the opportunity to sit at the feet of some pretty incredible people, but also want to learn from missionaries and learn about what it's like on, on the front lines sharing the gospel. So I was there to take notes and to soak it all in. And our group of 16, that's pretty much what we did for the first half of our, our time overseas. And then the evangelist, once we got to Kenya, decided he was going to split us up. We couldn't all go to each village, and so he said, let's, let's go to different parts of the country, and then we'll get back together. The only problem is eight went to Eldoret, Kenya, and then four of us guys went over to Meru, Kenya. And, and so we're in Meru, and we spend a couple of days with our missionary family. They're very kind. They took us on some sightseeing, went up to the equator, took some pictures. And, and they talked to us about what Sunday was going to look like the next morning. So Saturday night, he, he sits us around the table. He says, all right, here's what tomorrow. He goes, I basically travel in a circuit on Sundays. We're going to get up at sunrise, we'll be out on the road, and we're going to go to six different villages, and we'll share the same message every place that we go. Y'all ready to go? Yeah. All right. Awesome. Got up the next morning, and our missionary said, well, the land cruiser won't start. In, in hindsight, I don't, it was a Toyota. I don't think there's anything wrong with the land cruiser. But our missionary said this, okay, there's, there's four of you. We're going to split you up into two and two, and we've, I've got some local guys that are going to take you to three different villages. You'll have to walk. And I want you to go out. I'm going to stay back here and work on the Toyota and spend some time with the family. Okay, we don't have anything prepared for these three villages. He goes, that's okay. Just share your conversion story. Share your come to Jesus moment. Your encounter with Jesus. And so I was terrified. And, and so we're walking down. And, and I start going through my story and, and my relationship with God. So I'm like, okay, my parents brought me to church on the eighth day to the one and only true church. I, I've been to Bible class every Sunday morning and worship every Sunday morning. And Sunday night, we have Bible class then too. And, and Wednesday night, we have Bible class and, and a devotional. Uh, I've done that pattern for 22 years. Uh, you know, I know my Bible, 
In fact, in third grade, I had the second longest memory verse chain for every verse. They gave you a different link to put in there, and we prayed before the church. I still remember that Michelle Ruff had a couple more than I did. I don't know what I had for breakfast, but I remember Michelle Ruff beat me because I wanted to be number one. Okay, so we go in there. Uh, I was... I was called the VBS superstar and was given an award, my own little Bible, because I brought the most people to vacation Bible school. Uh, I was best camper at Camp Deer Run and got this little Balfour medal that said leadership on it. I was so proud, still have it. Uh, youth group? I, I did a ton of stuff. I was one of the main leaders. Uh, Bible Bowl? I got a trophy. We won first place in Nashville. Before it was LTC, it was Lads to Leaders. And we, and we traveled. This stuff was my life. You know, I sat at the feet of some of the best teachers and professors assembled at Abilene Christian University. Righteous? Well, I generally tried to do what was right. I felt like I was compliant. I was walking down the road, and it hit me. My story (laughs) was a whole lot more like Saul's than it was Paul. Yeah, I mean, I, I was baptized. I scheduled it as an event when my grandmother could be there. Did I need Jesus in his sacrifice? Well, I was doing pretty good. You know, I, I made it through my sermon that day, and I don't even remember what I said, and they were very gracious back in these little villages and stuff. But it started me on a journey of discovery and really asking, how do I come into right relationship with God? And it's not. <laughs> All these things that I did were, were fantastic, but they, none of that matters if I don't have Jesus Christ as my Lord. And, and anything that I want to do and preach about hopefully points towards Jesus. I read in Romans chapter 7 that Paul starts going on his own journey of discovery. He's like, the law, the law that I held so close. The the thing that I based my whole life on to up at that point, I found that it was powerless. And it just led to death because there's no way I could could live into this. Yeah, I was better than others. I call myself faultless, but (laughs) the law means nothing without Jesus. It just revealed that I was dead in my transgressions. All my outward goodness... (laughs) All my righteous devotion that I made sure people could see. That doesn't mean anything to me because I can't deal with my sin problem. I, I just can't. Paul says, I just want to know Christ. I, I want to know, the, I want to participate in his suffering. I, I want to conform to his death and, and, and hopefully attain the resurrection that he did. That's what my life is. It's just proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the story of redemption. It's Jesus taking us villains, each and every one of us, and saying, God, give us a new story. Because of our own, we're villains in opposition to you. Give us a new story, Lord. Is it going to be easy? No. But Ananias goes in. He said, hey, I kind of got a message from the Lord. Um, You're not only going to come to Jesus, you're going to suffer for the name of Jesus. (laughs) The guy that that you helped put to death in Jerusalem, the suffering he went through, 
that's now your calling. You're going to be that evangelist. You're going to take it to the Gentiles. Your road's not going to be easy. <laughs> you're going to be shipwrecked. You're going to be bitten by snakes. You're going to be stoned. You're going to be in prison, left for dead. All of that so that Jesus Christ may be glorified. Paul says, sign me up. I'm ready. I'm ready because it's worth it. What about you and I? Are you willing to be martyred for the cause? Are you willing to give up everything? I love the moment when Stephen passed away. (laughs) Right before the Lord gave him a glimpse, he said the heavens opened up and he could see Jesus Christ. They're in the throne room at the right hand of his heavenly father. And his stones are hitting him. That matters. None of that matters because he saw what his whole identity had been. He saw his redeemer and he saw his heavenly father. And he saw where he was going. And Paul says, I want that too. I saw it in his eyes. I want to be able to say, if I live, great, I'll be in, but I want to die. I, I go back and forth because I want what Stephen had. Is that what you and I want? Are you ready to move from being a self-centered villain to saying, Jesus, you've got to encounter. Lord, collide with me on the road I'm on right now so that I can live and not waste another day. I pray that each one of us can have those conversations with our Heavenly Father. Let's go and, and pray to Him right now. Lord, help us through this story to take heart. Lord, help us to be encouraged that your great power and your amazing grace that would save someone like Saul of Tarsus and turn him into the beloved Apostle Paul. That we're so thankful for, Lord. We know you're capable. We know that you have the power. Lord, forgive us when our will gets in the way of what you want us to do. And Lord, there may be uh, men and women around us That, Lord, we can't imagine you turning them into servants of Christ. Help us realize that all things are possible. Help us not to decide who gets the gospel message and who doesn't based on how they're acting now. Lord, open our eyes to see the fields that are ripe into the harvest. Lord, forgive us when our story has been about anything other than the story of your son, Jesus. My prayer is that when people come to be among us, is because they want to be around folks that are glowing like the angels, that are reflecting the glory that comes from you, Lord. Lord, I pray if there's a single person here today or, or is watching on, online that has yet to yield their life to Jesus, I'm praying for holy collisions this day and this week and this month and this year that they may come into a saving relationship with you. Lord, may our story quickly come off our lips as to how you've encountered us and how Jesus Christ lives in us. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.